3: welcome 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 back to the Bob left sets podcast my guest is the one and only Paul Schaefer Paul you're doing this benefit for pop culture with Jeff Barry on September 13th in Los Angeles tell me about that
4: well how much time do we have we have plenty of time go okay, for it. it's a complicated story first of all my daughter Victoria Lily Schaefer and what she, she she's 30 years old now and what she does is run a rescue association here in los angeles i'm visiting her now i'm in los angeles now called pup culture and it's the title of her book as well she wrote a book about pup culture because it's obviously about puppies but also the whole culture of you know dog lovers and how how it comes upon a person you know sometimes not of their own volition anyway that's what she does and then we have the great songwriter jeff barry who, with his late wife, Ellie Greenwich, wrote all of, I don't know about you, but they're all of my favorite songs. Oh, unbelievable. Starting from Be My Baby uh, by the Ronettes, Baby, I Love You, uh, I Can Hear Music, Diddy," from which we uh, called the title for the, our evening that we're going to have September 13th here in LA, Diddy's for doggies. Jeff is uh, 85 years old now, but still, uh, funny as hell. And uh, his the list of songs going through uh, I Honestly Love You by Olivia Newton-John that he wrote with Peter Allen and stuff. You know, he's got stories for days. And I am the, uh, the what did Irwin Corey used to call himself? The world's foremost authority on his stuff. And Ellie was one of my good friends, his late wife. And I worked with Jeff in 74. It's a whole mishagas that I could get into. About how we met and how long we've met. Anyway, he surfaced in my life I, just uh, spontaneously. I told him about my kids and Victoria's out there. He's in the next canyon over. That's the way they s- speak out here on the coast. And he said, "Well, we should do uh, something and give the you know an evening and give the uh, my songs and and stories and we'll give the money to Victoria's rescue." And I said, "You're on." So do our ditties for doggies is going to it's live at the a club called the um <clears throat> the write-off room the write-off room in uh, in studio city california on ventura i believe and uh, it's going to be jeff and i and uh you know it's on the internet of course you could we would love people to buy tickets in advance so we know you know if we got a show if we've got an evening or not so far we're doing pretty well so we're a, like a month away but i can't wait i just you know these songs and group of songs uh i've just been obsessed with since i saw the ronettes on american bandstand do it in the afternoon uh when the american bandstand was on a saturday afternoon and then went skiing in the freeze frozen north where i was growing up uh but couldn't get this song out of my mind you know be my baby uh what a sound and what a what a sentiment and what I mean, what girls, the raw nets! Oh, my goodness. I was just starting to, you know, learn about girls and stuff. This is the way to go and to learn. What an explosion on Saturday afternoon. So then, you know, meeting Jeff Barry later and working with him was just, you know, for me, incredible. And I can't wait because even I, there's there's things I got to know uh, that I still don't understand and know about how they wrote certain songs and stuff okay so what exactly hanky panky is another one right what exactly
3: is the show gonna be
4: well um jeff sings he was a vocalist too back in the day and by the day i mean you know late 50s early 60s uh then he um became a writer and his first hit as a writer was tell laura i love her remember that of course tell laura i love her come on exactly what Great melody and what, a you know, what a story about a stock car race and a, and a death. Tell Laura, well, he opens with that, you know, and then we're just going to get into it. I want to hear immediately about, you know, what what is the story behind it and how did, you know, where the hell did you come from and all kinds of things. And it turns out we have, we both have Don Rickles stories. We've already established that. So. We're going to get those in, you know, v- before we do anything else, and then just it's going to be all music. And you know, when he does say to do run run, um, the audience just will be singing along naturally. They can't help themselves. He says, you know, once in a while he hasn't done it much, but once in a while he does a thing like this with a pianist. He says, you know, when I say met him on Monday and it looks so fun, the audience just is there to do run run. You know, and so I'll be the pianist playing for him, and nobody plays these songs better because nobody loves them like I do. And we're just going to go through all the hits, including I Honestly Love You, you know, for Olivia Newton-John that he's also going to sing. And then, you know, other surprises, but I'll give away one surprise just because because you asked. But uh, we have a, a, yeah, a dear friend in common whose name is Ron Dante. And um, Ron was the voice of the Archies, when they sang sugar sugar another of jeff's compositions so i got and ron got really got me started doing arrangements in the studios in new york and in the 70s because he heard a thing that jeff and i had done together uh and so i just called ron you know he's going to come over and sing sugar sugar that'll be part of the evening too and you never know there may be other surprises
3: oh okay you got to tell one don rickles story
4: oh okay uh I'll, I'll tell mine um the first time he did letterman i was thrilled because he i'd obviously watched the show and knew my name it was early in our run and he turned to me on the panel and he said paul have yourself committed
2: <laughs> that's
4: it J- jeff says he is funnier even
3: okay you're with your sister, or your, excuse me, your daughter in the San yeah. Fernando Valley. Are you staying in her house or staying in a hotel? Staying at her house this time.
4: And what, um, is, what
3: is that like all these years later?
4: Well, uh, first of all, she's got a wonderful gentleman with whom, you know, who who is sharing this house with her as well, uh, named Brandon. Um, more, and, you know, not, not involved in show business at all. But uh, you know they are a, a, a serious couple, and we have to stay out of their way and be respectful. So of course it's a little bit of a of a tap dance, and my wife uh, can't help herself but to say, you know, you haven't changed this light bulb since we were here. A la- honey, cool it with the light bulb. You know, it's as it's as exactly as you <laughs> you might imagine. But it's uh, it's great to see Victoria, and the fact that we can. Still do it at all. It's, I guess, quite amazing.
3: Okay. You come to the West Coast. Are you the type of person who emails people in advance and texts them, I'm coming, we got to get together? Or is it more of a family homebody thing?
4: Um, well, and, you know, different trips. Victoria's been out here for a few years now. I'm not even sure, six, eight years. So every trip can be different. And I do have some friends here and some of my Canadian friends, live here you know transplants and i sometimes i do get to get to see them um and sometimes it's just all about victoria and and family visits too so you know we do it both ways okay certainly
3: you have a long reputation as being mr showbiz appreciating these people knowing their backstories did you really only see them on television when you were on the show or are they friends
4: Uh, Um, well, I've got to get some clarification on the question. Currently, you're talking about me today. Well, yes. I I mean, give me an example.
3: I don't need to separate. It could be, you know, what I'm really asking is Dave was famous for not hanging with the guests. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even though we saw guests all the time. Although Dave sort of stood apart from showbiz. Whereas you were heavily immersed in love, showbiz knew everybody's story. Mm-hmm. So when people were in town in New York to be on the show, would you go hang with them after the show? When you came to the West Coast, would you ring them up? Both when you were on television all those nights a week, and now.
4: Well, s- certainly I, some. You know, by the time I got on on the Letterman show, I, I was thirty-two, had already done, you know, five years of uh the first five years of Saturday Night Live. So for instance, I had uh friends who had been, you know, in the cast on Saturday Night Live. Still friends. If someone like it, a Dan Aykroyd or something, we absolutely might have hung out afterwards. Um, Martin Short, you know, who who with um Eugene Levy and and Dave Thomas are really my three closest friends from Canada. If any of them, well, if when Martin Short would do it, you know, we sort of had a tradition. We would tr- we try to keep the limo that they sent for him, <laughs> and we we would specifically go hit the town, you know, because he would come from. As I said, he lives in Los Angeles. Well, I maybe not said it, but he one of the people that I might call up and come in. So you know, but these are our actual friends. Now maybe back in the eighties, oh, we had a couple of classic jam sessions after shows here and there, you know, where. A musician might say, hey, let's, you know, can we get a little rehearsal studio and jam? So that did happen when we, but we were, we had the energy to do it afterwards. By the end of the show, believe me, I was just as happy to go home. So tired all the time. It was doing a show every single day. You look at even even the guys doing these daily shows now. I saw Seth Meyers the other day. Oh my God. It's just exhausted. Just like I was. When you're doing it every single day.
3: Okay, so the show ends. Yeah. And at first, there's a relief. But yeah. it must have been a big emotional
4: adjustment. I think you're right, and it was physical too. First of all, I was a migraine sufferer during the show. I was on a a, a drug called um, gabapentin. A lot of people seem to know what it is now. Yeah. Just for migraine headaches and a, a huge dose of it. And as soon as the show ended, it stopped working. I got started getting headaches again, which was also kind of part of it anyway. When you're a migraine sufferer, sometimes on the weekends, when the pressure's off, that's when you get a headache. You know, the, during the week, you're kind of guarding. Anyway, that happened to me and I had to get off that gabapentin, which was a whole, another, uh, you know, ordeal. And so all of that happened and, um, mo, emotionally, s- well, you know, even before emotionally, your schedule is different. Absolutely start getting hyped up at about 4.30 because the tape used to roll at 5.30. And then you, ah, wait, I don't have to do the this. Uh, but boy, you certainly miss it. And I definitely missed it for, my goodness, you know, certainly the first year or two until I readjusted anything. I didn't feel busy at all, even if I had like a week recording sessions there's just kind of nothing compared to how busy we all were doing that daily show and it was uh pressure filled and i had headaches all the time but you get used to it and you know yeah it took me a while to get over it now i'm over it and say i as i heard dave Letterman say the other day i think uh, we may have done it maybe five years too long because we were up there and it takes some energy
3: So you're saying the energy was depleted and it hurt the show a little bit?
4: No, you know, because Dave would never let that happen. I think it's more of what the effect that I was saying, you're tired all the time. You're going to get up for that show and do the best. You know, and he was, he never stopped coming in super early in the morning, staying super late, analyzing the show. That never let up. I think he just had to, it's a little harder to summon the energy.
3: Okay, I've been to Canada a million times, love Canada, but starting in the 80s. So yeah. you're growing up in the 50s and 60s. Like If you go to some of these foreign countries like Norway, they were really in the dark ages. You know, ultimately, Norway got money from oil and a changed thing. Did you feel like you were on the outside looking in or did you just feel part of the whole United States stream?
4: Outside looking in, for sure. And I think that, you know, a lot of people uh, ask me and my Canadian friends uh, all the time, why do so many, you know, especially in comedy, why is there so much comedy coming from Canada or Canadians coming to be? Uh, I think that's a good part of it. We were so close to it, but so far. And we were studying it. You know, we studied the Ed Sullivan Show just as, as closely as anybody else. But to us, it was even more special uh, to get to see Sophie Tucker or something. And I don't know, it was just really, I was very far away from it, up in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Okay,
3: you're growing up, what kind of kid are you?
4: Kind of uh, shy and um, an only child. Um, Quiet and had all the privacy I would want as a kid. Um, Didn't really fit in. You have to be kind of rugged and love the outdoors to feel comfortable in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And When I I was a kid, it was called Fort William and Port Arthur. And the two cities amalgamated. Um, But if you love, you know, and I did ski for sure uh because it was you know socially as a kid you had to either ski or skate and i was a skier and and you know a a badge of honor would be if you could stay up and 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 uh, party you know into the evening and then be on the slopes at 8 a.m as soon as the chairlifts you know that that's a man or you know or, or a gal who knows how to party but and i was doing that kind of stuff um and it was cold as hell Okay, let's Uh, stop with the
3: skiing thing for a minute. On Dave's final show, the final shot is him skiing with his son. There was video. mm, Beautiful. Okay. Okay. When was the last time you skied?
4: Not since I left Thunder Bay.
3: So once you left, that was it. Not when your kid's growing up, not like, well, let's do this as a family.
4: No, and I feel that's, you know, one thing that I was a little negligent uh i really tried to step up and be you know and i had a son besides victoria i've got a a 24 year old son and you know just like in, in in the movie the play carousel my god you got to be a father to a, a son and i did my best but skiing no i would not you know wasn't worth it because i could i can't imagine having any kind of gore-tex or material things that they have now that keep you warm oh yeah we much better not only freezing, but kind of bundled up, could barely move, ski poles in your hand, and just, you know, coming, oh my goodness. But uh, as far as the kind of kid I was, I've got this recollection of waiting for the chairlift at the bottom. Um, and when you're not skiing, it's even colder. You're just standing there. <sighs> you know, it's way, way, way. and um, you're in Northern Ontario, and the chairlift was blasting music. Like they might at a a carnival, you know, in front of a ride, blasting out music, and I hear, you know, as I'm waiting, I hear this for the very first time, and I think I would have been twelve.
2: <laughs>
4: I hear the Tokens record "The Lion Sleeps," in, and oh, wow! And it was again sort of like that, you know, experience of of the Ronettes seeing the Ronettes, but even more immediate. That got me through the day of skiing and everybody when I'd come down and waiting again you'd hear it again and uh every time i i couldn't believe the sound The sound just kind of galvanized me and that got me you know that's what became important to me and kind of saved my life i think a lot of rock and rollers talk about it okay rock and roll saved my life
3: so music in the household and when did you start taking piano lessons
4: my mother said you'll take lessons when you are six, when you start to learn uh, how to read in school, read English. That's the time. That's what she believed. And so I started uh, lessons at age six.
3: You know, I took piano lessons at the same age. I actually started ah. at five, but right. oh. you can go to lessons and not practice and not be into it. Or you can be into it. Were you always into it? Or was when you heard the token song or something that you became accelerated?
4: Uh, I'm always into it in that my mother kind of set me up. She was one of those Jewish mothers who had music in the house specifically so that I would get involved in it. And she played Chopin and and she played uh, Broadway music, uh, the Ethel Merman and Mary Martin album at Carnegie Hall. And, uh, it just, you know, it does seep in Rachmaninoff and stuff. That was her music. And then my dad, uh, this conservative lawyer from Thunder Bay, small town lawyer, but he dug uh, the great jazz vocalists, Billy Eckstein and Sarah Vaughn. And even he, he turned me on to Ray Charles on Sundays. You know, he would put on his records and when Ray Charles, uh, um, so that was pretty, you know, pretty good. And my mother also was a pianist, played, you know, not professionally or anything, but but could play the piano, certain classical things from, from music. And I remember as an infant being under the piano as she played, feeling of, you know, the sound coming down. And, um, but as soon as she got me playing, le- ta- taking lessons, she stopped playing, never played again, almost like her work was done. Cause I was playing that and I played these lessons and I don't know, um, the first lesson I came home and I started figuring out my own, you know, melodies, not that I ever wrote. I was not, not a writer, but just, I figured out that you could play the William Tell Overture, which every kid was on our mind because of the Lone Ranger television show, Uh, mostly on all black keys. I, but I couldn't even figure that out until that first lesson came home though. And that's what I wanted to. Hey, da, 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 you can actually, you know, and that's I kind of was started getting interested right away in playing by ear. And that's really what, uh, you know, uh, what became important to me and what I still really do. Uh, uh, maybe why I never really wrote or found, you know, I only wrote one or two songs my whole life. Cause what I really like to do is sit down and play the songs that I know. So I never bought records. But as I was listening, you know, I didn't buy Be My Baby, but I could sure play it. And I used to pound it out on the piano really loud get the sound up, you know, and kind of play all the different parts. Da, 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 the string part and stuff, you know, just figuring out by ear. Um, And I, I still get my kicks doing that.
3: Brian Wilson feels the same way. Be my baby. As you and me both know, interacting with Brian Wilson is its own special uh, situation. But did you ever discuss that with Brian?
4: Yeah, sure. Uh, You almost have to. So tell Um, me. Well, uh, there was a point when, and this is really, it's not my own story. It had been reported back to me, but I kind of had something to do that. I was, I missed the second season of Saturday Night Live because I was in California doing that show and I got to work with Jeff Barry. But during that season, uh, Brian appeared as a, as a guest, I, I believe. And the singers were gotten, you know, Howard Shore, the musical director, got Brian, the singers, background singers, the kind of people that I know. Uh, Susan Collins, another got, you know, woman who stands at attention for Be My Baby and can sing with that Ronnie sound. And Ellie, and Susan knew Ellie Greenwich, the actual Ellie Greenwich sang background for, uh, for Brian Wilson. And when Brian heard that Ellie had written, Be My Baby. He was just, you know, he was floored. He became, he became, a, he, be, he became her baby and was saying, you know, Ellie, just, you know, just enjoying being in her presence, I think.
3: Okay. So you're practicing the piano, you're working out songs. If I was in school with you, would I say, "Oh, that's Paul Schaefer, he plays the piano?" or was it more Yeah, a I think thing- so. Okay.
4: Well, because I you know, I was always called upon to play in the school assemblies. I'm not sure how it started because I can't remember, but I have a recollection of myself but coming up in front of the assembly when the whole school's assembled, you know, and playing a little classical piece from my lesson, Mozart or something, and boring everybody. Um, but in uh, what we call junior high, grade seven and eight up there in Canada, I started becoming aware of rock and roll. And um, I said, you know, about grade seven, now, you know what, instead of Mozart, I, I think I'm going to play Pipeline by the Chanteys. Uh and I'm not sure. Well, no, I mean, it's another whole story why I summoned the nerve to do it. Uh, but when I did, it was pandemonium. The kids were expecting, you know, Mozart. And, uh, it's, I figured out how to do that on the piano. And I was you know, I got a reaction that said, You don't have to write your own songs. Just, you know, look at what you can do to an audience just with a great song and a performance of it. So I learned that early.
3: I had a friend who booked Oprah for live gigs, and someone said, well, why does Oprah have to play live gigs? And he said, you can't get that hit anywhere else. So what was it like when they're reacting to Pipeline?
4: I mean, sure, it was great. You know, I was a, a child of about 12. And so, as I say, a kind of life-changing uh, thought of, uh, I, I realized that I, you know, this works. I think that's what, what I thought to myself. Hey, this works. And so when I would be called upon, and I, I um, throughout my high school career, play the piano, you know, I started playing when the Beatles came out.
3: A little bit bit slower. Okay. So we have uh, Ike Turner, Chuck Berry, the Sun Records. We have Elvis. Elvis kind of goes down. We have Fabian. We have Bobby Rydell. Were you a fan of popular music in general before the Beatles? Or just specific sounds?
4: No. Popular, that music uh, and what it could do to me. Those chords, they were so simple. They were all the same same four chords, and I found, you know, once I learned them, I could play all these songs. Now, bandstand, I, I remember seeing my first American bandstand on a trip, family trip to Minneapolis, because we had no American television. We only had one channel when I was, you know, when, in uh, elementary school, the CBC. Uh, and it carried the Sullivan Show, luck, luckily, CBC. And that's why Ed would what I... And now for my friends up in Canada, you know, that was because we... He had a seat Canadian on it. Uh, but I had to go to Minneapolis with a family to see American Bandstand and to see Bobby Rydell perform that afternoon, lip syncing, as they all did on American Band, to Butterfly Baby. And during the instrumental, pulling a girl out of the audience, a teeny bopper in a poodle skirt and dance dancing with her, it was phenomenal. And the girl was flushed afterwards, dick so... So suave, what did you think, my dear about Bobby But? you know, uh, and uh, this just stuck with me. and uh, and the Philly sound, I loved it both times, or you know, there's probably more than two, but you know, the last time i, I remember was a great gamble and Huff right. time Philly soul, but before that American bandstand with the with the dovelles, D.D. sharp, all these great acts coming out of Philly, the uh, Watusi you know, um. Well I think I guess that was DD Sharp. But who am I trying to think of? The Orlons? Uh Don't Hang Up. No, no. Yeah. And I used to after school, you know, I didn't buy the records, play play them. And you know, that intro of One Fine Day by the Chiffons that Carol King played. Amazing to play that. Dun, 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 dun. So it's way before the Beatles, really. Way by way before I made a good three years, three three years before.
3: Okay, so at what point did you start playing in bands with other people?
4: Um, there was a hip guy in my in high school. Uh, Rick Lazar was his name. Uh, he was of uh, Assyrian origin, um, and he was a, himself a young musician, saxophone player. Smoker. sacks always smell like cigarettes. And heard me, you know, I would have been in grade nine or something, first year of, uh, of high school, heard me, he he a year older, heard me in the assembly playing something by the Beatles or, or something, you know, a pop. And he actually, you know, made it his business to introduce himself to me and say, let's, I can get the music room, he said, at uh, lunchtime. We can go in there let's play some records and just play a little bit my first real jam session with another guy and um we got on we we played the paul butterfield album uh first paul butterfield album that he had that's how hippie was you know off in thunder bay and the it said on the back of the album play this for best results play at top volume right and we absolutely did turned it up full and just a little square vinyl player in the music room and that was and he had a band already he was in a band uh they were first called the laurentians named after a kind of pontiac car that was only available in canada yeah so they weren't named
3: after the mountain range they were named after (laughs) the pontiac
4: they were named after the pontiac because another band even earlier in town was called the (laughs) bonnevilles and uh, we had a guy who wanted to do everything they did because they seemed to be successful so this is pretty early. Uh, Ricky, Funky Ricky, we called him Rick Lazar. His middle name was Shadrack. Sometimes he went by Shad. Uh, as a guy who wrote my, I, you know, I wrote a little book with a, with a great ghostwriter, David Ritz, who I said, I read it. You know, I read it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And this part, though, he said, F- I talked about Funky Ricky and Ritz's phrase was, uh, something like, you know, he was uh, to two years, he was a year older and about a decade hipper. It was really true of him. And I joined his band, and they changed their name eventually to The Fugitives, The Fabulous Fugitives. And they had been a sax instrumental band. Ricky on sax, playing Johnny and the Hurricanes stuff. <laughs> Crossfire. Ricky could do a technique called the Flutter Tongue, I think. <laughs> and Peter Gunn, of course. <laughs> And then when the Beatles hit, right as I was joining, they added vocals. One guy, Bob O, Bob Anyak, he could sing very well. And they added me to their band on keyboards. They had had no keyboard before. So now I start doing gigs, and I joined the AFFM Musicians Union, even up there. Uh, I had to join the union. We were a union band. Uh became a union member, and we would do a gig. 18 bucks sometimes was a scale for three hours or $22 for a four hour dance. Those are the kind of. Okay,
3: a couple of questions. And what instrument were you taking? Because it wasn't long after the Beatles broke in America that the Dave Clark Five broke and Mike Smith had his portable organ, whatever. So what were you taking
4: to gigs? Yes, sir. Well, Mike Smith had the the holy grail of combo organs, the Vox Continental. so beautifully designed, it, it, the way it looked was fabulous. The chrome legs and the shape of a Z, uh, and they were made in Italy. These these Vox organs, but marketed by Vox out of Britain. I and never knew that. The, the burrito, yeah, uh, they were. They took over. I think it was the Thomas, something like that. There was a there was a collab. Um, but these are organs cost a thousand dollars in Canada. A little out of my range. However, with a, you know, a financial arrangement, I worked out with my dad to pay him back a little bit <clears throat> each gig, which he eventually forgot about. Don't, don't worry about it. But I bought a, a, a Horner organ, Horner organ, um, just because it was in the music store, really no other reason. And it didn't cost a whole thousand dollars. And I got that in an amp. And the amp was a trainer amp because the trainer was a Canadian company out of Toronto. T-R-A-Y-N-O-R. And, uh, you know, again, better prices. Not a great, not great for keyboards. I later got a better, you know, because it was good for guitar. It had a lot of distortion. But yeah, lugging around my own amp and, uh, keyboard. There was no such thing as roadies then. I don't, the word hadn't even come along. Uh, and always 30 below, you know, so it was always gigging after the gig, a little soaking wet, loading the equipment into the back of the, Car, I think, I'd, ironically, we may have had a Capone Laurentian. <laughs> uh, always sick, always getting the flu, because I, you know, so cold and always w- wet from the gig and stuff. Those are my my Toronto uh, can- and sometimes even going by the A and W drive-in, wet stuff in the back. Then you get home, you know, after a big hamburger from A and W. Too cold to unload, so I sometimes leave try to leave the amp out. Wow! In the in the car, but you only do that once because the tubes freeze in the cold, thirty below, and it's just you know, got to replace all the tubes. Had all that happen to me.
3: Okay. So when did you first hear the Beatles?
4: Um, I'm not sure if I heard any music before the Sullivan Show or not. Their appearance on the Sullivan Show. Uh, certainly I, I could pick up WLS AM radio from Chicago, um, as early as Dick Biondi.
3: And were you a big uh, listener? Yes. With your transistor under the pillow, the whole bit?
4: Whole bit. The transistor was a rocket radio in the shape of a rocket. It was a crystal radio where, where you tuned it in. I could hear Dick Biondi on this crystal radio. Uh, and he just died, by the way. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. Uh, well, he, I, I, you know, I came in contact with him a little bit later on. Um, so I, I, you know, he's known to have played the Beatles for the first time. I'm not sure if that's true or not. So I may have heard the music, but certainly saw. No, I guess I did because I, I guess I kind of knew the songs a little bit when I saw them on Sullivan, and that was uh, quite a revelation. But I, I gotta say. And I say this more and more in my old crabby age, but I can't believe the number of musicians, certainly, well, Americans and Canadians, who just cite, no matter how old, even if they're older than I am, cite that Beatles on Sullivan. That's when I picked up a guitar, you know. Oh, yeah. Joe, they all, Joe Walsh comes to mind, you know, a guy, you know, who uh, su- such credibility as a musician and stuff, but wasn't really into it till he heard the Beatles not the case with me when I heard the four seasons though when when they okay okay
3: okay, so what are the key four seasons tracks for you
4: well I mean good goodness gracious Sherry was the first one of course infectious big girls don't cry that opening I mean it's so the sound is you know just stuck with me maybe that one and that's what they did on on Sullivan they did big girls don't cry and they, that opening is just so strange. Frankie's voice on the top, the way the other guys sang, were strange too. Turns out they had been like club musicians in Jersey all these years. And they were not young. When they hit Sullivan, they were already in their maybe 35, you know. They had a look that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, and they had those ties, those formal ties. Oh, yeah. That, like that. But that, wow. I mean, that... Galvanized me, and then the, the great Bob Gaudio, who wrote a, a lot of that early stuff, and you know was uh, so kind of the musical leader of uh, the way he s- stood on stage. I'll never forget it. He he was pointed upstage. They didn't know how to shoot or deal with a a big piano or organ at that time, so they he, they had him kind of pointed upstage, and he would point stretch his neck around to get back to the mic and, uh, to see, you you know, uh, and that, that kind of stuck with me. Um, but then followed them and they, as you know, were the, really the only American group that kept having hits. Well, through,
3: the, through the one, one band. other band, cause we yes. had Cherry, we had, uh, you know, big girls. Oh, don't well, cry. the beach boys. And I, they, I, exactly. I so we were you a out beach, out the beach boys,
4: boys. fan. Uh, sure. How can you not be a Beach Boys fan? I, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a summer of 64,
3: it was Dawn Go Away and I Get Around.
4: But and I get around you know, a brilliant. I mean, they're both brilliant in their own in their own way. Uh, and, and you don't have to go to Pet Sounds, you know, for the intellectual Beach Boys to think that they're great. I get around was a knockout musically. Uh, now, do you know, okay, do you know the first line of the first lyric of um the one that Al Jardine sings? We're Help me, Ronda. me,
3: Rhonda. Yeah. yeah. Well, since she put me down, I've been out doing in my head.
4: Well, you see that outdoing in my head, I never learned that until I used to finally get to see them live a little bit. Uh, and I became very close friends with Billy Hinchy, one of their side men. I knew Billy.
3: Absolutely. Oh, very sad goodness. passing.
4: Yeah. Yes. And so well, he told me it was, you know, nobody knows that but you and me and <laughs> Billy yeah. and Al Jardine. Out doing in my head. What a what a crazy lyric. People think it's you know up to it in my head. Or
3: but there's some other ones. Okay, on uh, summer days and summer nights. Yeah, uh, that had California Girls first song on the second side, and it had the single version of Help Me Rhonda at the end of the first side, where in Beach Boys today had a studio version, wasn't mixed the same way. But before Help Me Rhonda. There's a song that Carl sings called Girl Don't Tell Me Hey oh, great. Little yeah. Girl yeah. and you know sure. there were certain you know there were certain lyrics there I didn't have any idea what they were until the internet hit
4: Aha uh-huh. that's a great one Girl Don't Tell Me you will Write. Yeah uh, maybe Brian wrote those lyrics himself I you know I'm not sure I'm a kind of a Beach Boys student too and I you know I can keep up with a lot of these fanatics uh, who can talk Beach Boys 24 hours a day, and I can be I, okay. I'm happy to do it you, right with them.
3: Let's go to the other fanatics. What about the Grateful Dead and the Boss fanatics?
4: Well, okay, you want me to... to no, no, I the one one
3: I, I, okay, I'm, let me go oh. into this, okay? Okay. I'm fans of both of those acts. I always say with Springsteen, I saw him at the bottom line in 74, the year before Born to Run, he premiered Jungle Land. And then yeah. The Grateful Dead, I saw a million times in the 70s. And you have all these people who were not there. No matter what you say, they're bigger authorities than you are. No, no, no. was at this show, blah, 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 blah. I was wondering okay, if you had yeah. any of those experiences.
4: Well, um, you know, regarding the dead, I, I, I must confess I didn't really get them until I got a chance to play with jerry garcia okay well wait, wait, a little
3: bit slower because jerry has such a legend and you were familiar somewhat with the music by the time that happened uncle john's band had been out etc what was the experience of playing with jerry
4: well that's just that's the whole thing i mean the first time i saw them live i it was uh, with, with uh, the closing of winterland uh in about 78 okay or 70, uh, you know, uh, where we, uh, I was with the Blues Brothers at that time, uh, Aykroyd and Belushi from uh, SNL. I saw you and at we, the
3: Universal mm-hmm. Amphitheater.
4: Oh, wow. Sure. The first time? Uh, yeah, of course. Or, well, that was, you know, yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, um, the Rubber Biscuit. recorded that first album, Rubber Biscuit, right. And Aykroyd just came up with that one out of, uh, you know, I don't know where. But uh, we opened, and then the the uh, New Riders and the Dead. Right. So, you know, the Dead were just starting at midnight and going on, and they broadcast live and stuff. And, no, and at this point, no, I did not understand them. I started to understand, you know, what they were supposed to be doing, but I couldn't penetrate it. When Jerry and, and Bob Weir came on Letterman, uh and then I saw them you know i got to I was around them when they did SNL too the various time but when the two of them just came on there and let them play with my band and Jerry turned to the band like Miles Davis somehow he was so open he opened his heart up to us and I started hearing him it was just it was then that I realized what he's doing I couldn't understand it before but he his spirit you know so that's my personal experience with him, right? Musically, uh, unbelievable. I became a, an accolade right there. Okay. Or is it acolyte? So
3: you are a keyboard player. A lot of prog rock is keyboard based. Were you a fan of prog rock?
4: I guess not. Not really. I didn't hear any, I mean, schmoss rock. I has not really even been named, but if there was such a thing, that's me. I'm looking for, I don't know, chords, melodies, things like that. Certainly, uh, yes, you know, some of, the, some of those hits, absolutely. Roundabout, yeah, great. I can hear it in my head. And great, you know, all that keyboard is great. Certainly, Rick Wickman, a fan. Jean- Lord, John Lord, incredible. I don't know if that counts as prog rock when they did Hush. Well, that's, oh, you know, yeah. the,
3: they were there earlier. Uh, you know, yeah. I, we've, we've sort of gotten that. But let's go back. You were talking about playing with the guy, the saxophone player, playing, jamming on the Paul Butterfield band. I think East West was the first one. I'm no, that mistaken. was the second one. Second first one, one was okay. just. I was not a big yeah. Butterfield fan. I was out of that, that. That, of course, was that you were playing the records at home on the piano. This was in the era, although I was in the New York radio market, we had to own it to hear it in many cases. Uh-huh. So there's certain blank spots. But okay. the reason I bring this up is we have the Beatles, we have the British Invasion, we have San Francisco, and in 1967 in San Francisco and in New York, the first underground FM radio stations, okay? And Hendrix is 67, Cream is 68. Were you more of a top 40 guy? Or when that stuff came, you said, I'm into that too.
4: Oh, I was into that, too, because I was in college going to going to U- University of Toronto, and Toronto had a, a, a relatively early FM station, Chum FM. Right, uh, of course.
3: Yeah, great station.
4: Okay. And um, so I was listening to that in college, and, you know, Knights in White Satin comes to mind. Right. It, that was heavy rotation there, but certain things, I got a line on you. Spirit. Uh, I guess I was kind of picking the hits out of that stuff uh but certainly was into how could you not be into fm radio and those djs who there was one dj still going up there i think when he first came on the scene his name was dave mickey yeah dave mickey he was like a beyond you know a beyondy of canada but then he became dave mars then
3: you know scott muni <laughs> Was on AM 77 WABC, number one in the nation, the Scott Muni show. Then he was on WADW. Hello, this is Scott Muni. I mean, you couldn't believe it was the same guy.
4: I've got a great Scott Muni story.
3: Okay, tell us.
4: (laughs) Uh, In 1981, I was doing studio work. It was just a year before Letterman started. And after I had left SNL, more, just studio work, a lot of jingle work in, in, um, in New York, playing on Coca-Cola and whatever, you know, the products. And I was in that business, and then I went and to, took a little vacation to Hawaii with my wife and got in a, a bad car accident there uh, and broke all nine ribs in the shoulder and everything and took a good three years to recover. Letterman started in the middle of my recovery, Dave Letterman still remembers. You said there was. A, you came in for that first meeting. You said you were kind of walking on an angle. I knew something was wrong. I had had that. Uh, I had had that accident. I was in the hospital and in, uh, in Honolulu for twelve days. And while I was there, word kind of got around in New York, and all my lovely friends in the studio business and jingle business. Called me there. Are you, you know, hope you're okay and everything. It was very nice of them. Um I was morphined out and stuff. Um one guy though, and he's no longer with us, Hilary Lipsitz. That's the way he spoke. He produced a lot of things, including, you know, when the when the four seasons sang things go better with Coke in that era. He right. produced all that stuff. And he said, Yeah, Paul, he spoke like that. I hope you're all right over there in Honolulu. Here, say hello to my friend. He, he was a big drinker and he put his drinking buddy on the phone. Hey, this is Scott Muni. He says, Say hello to Danny Bonatai over there, WQAW over there, good friend of mine over there in Honolulu. Wow. And I, I said, Scott, I'm in an oxygen tent. <laughs> I'm not going to say hello to a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks, though. Anyway, that was uh, You're lovely of him to call, nonetheless.
3: Okay, before we leave Thunder Bay, what was it like being Jewish in Thunder Bay?
4: Well, uh, not too many Jewish families, although when I was um, a kid growing up there, there were 40 families. That was a lot. I think it's a lot less now. And yeah, it was different. I didn't, uh, you know, certainly wasn't aware of any anti-Semitism there. It may have existed. I may have been just too, too naive to know about it um certainly didn't get into my in my way um you know we would take off the high holidays and and uh that would be big in the school that we were allowed to miss a couple days you know but we would be watching the world series anyway (laughs) at at home that's what i remember mostly about it so what point
3: do you say this is my profession this is my job When do you have that light bulb moment?
4: Not until college, University of Toronto, um, Chum FM playing, and first year. I mean, I I certainly didn't have the nerve to even think myself that I was going to go into any kind of show business. No, absolutely. Too far-fetched coming from Thunder Bay. And the Canadian... In general, Canadians uh, can be a little pessimistic. Uh, You know, who do you think you are, eh? You know, you're going to be a big star, eh? (laughs) Uh, So I was, and my dad, you know, would have loved me to have a profession, a real profession. And I didn't. Law didn't seem, following in his footsteps didn't seem right, but I didn't. I was going to try something, I don't know, but I was taking uh, liberal arts, sociology, philosophy, and psychology. Uh, got very depressed first year. I didn't have a band anymore. I had no, you know, mu- no musical outlet. I didn't exactly know why, but I was just sleeping all the time. Imagine today they'd be diagnosing it as Epstein-Barr or something. Like, but I was just, you know, so sad. And then, um, but but still in Toronto, and it was great. Because it was, a you know, a real city and there were real rock acts coming and blues acts and a, a nightclub called the Rock Pile where, you know, very Fillmore-esque, I guess, just opened with blood, sweat and tears. But the Canadian David Clayton Thomas on vocals, whom we knew because through his Canadian records and stuff, he was a, a, a phenomenon up there, too. He uh, could sing great. And they opened, BS and T opened at the rock pile. And I was at all four shows, two on Friday, two on Saturday, just starting to, you know, study this stuff, get excited about it. But still, you know, trying to do philosophy and, and things. Uh, a little bit of a dichotomy stayed in, in New York, stayed in Toronto that summer, didn't go back to Thunder Bay. And I said, I'd like to maybe as, you know, blood, sweat and tears in Chicago and stuff. First time horns started, uh, making their way. I'll, although Bobby or Idell's records had horns, but they featured them, I guess. Um, and I said to my parents, I'd like to stay in, t- in Toronto and take an arranging course this summer. And they, you know, I sold them on that. Uh, really, I wanted to be where the action was T O Toronto town instead of, you of know, Thunder Bay, but, but, uh, I took this arranging course, and it sure is a good thing I did. It's the, really the only training I have in arranging, and I kind of became an arranger. So that was good Good luck. But one night, oh, and I, I started, you know, listening, uh, getting a little bit into the Toronto jazz scene too, sometimes going to see a guitarist up there named Sonny Greenwich, incredible, Coltrane-inspired. And one night, early morning actually, coming home that summer, after I don't know what, I got a job in a, in a bar band very easily and played covers uh, that summer to support myself. Coming home 6 a.m., a guy sitting on a stoop in the, what their village, they had kind of a Greenwich village there called uh, Yorkville. A guy sitting on a stoop of a deli playing guitar, uh, acoustic guitar. And I walk by and hear a couple of notes and say, holy. I walk right, I double take, and I go right back and start listening to him. And it just blows my mind. He's out. He's playing, you know, it's like Coltrane, again, on guitar. Uh, Scales that I've never heard of, not blues-based in any way. Only guitarist really I ever heard like that. I said, what are you doing? And that very morning, we went over to the U of T practice room, and he started showing me stuff. Opening me up and really in the old fashioned way, he started me on standards. My parents knew all the standards and I knew them, but couldn't hear them, couldn't hear those slightly more sophisticated chords. He showed me a couple of things. All of a sudden, things started to unlock and I really started to think I could maybe, maybe I could be a musician. I started playing with him, apprenticing with him. Eventually, he came back to New York. He was in New York originally, and I still play with him. I just did an album, produced an album with him just a couple Well, is it ago. somebody we know? He's unknown. He should be known. His name is Tesiji Munoz. Maybe a little unknown because you can't pronounce his name. Uh, but that's a kind of a spiritualistic name. You know, Munoz is his real last name. And what He's was he Brooklyn. doing out at 6 a.m.? uh he had just got to town and it was free you know we were free spirits i was out at 6 a.m too coming home walking through the village he was playing um i started um playing with him right then and then uh, and then i got um so i graduated at that point you could uh you know there were 13 years of high school but then you could get a degree after three years which I took my like an undergrad a bachelor's degree, and I said to my parents, let me, you know, give me a year, see what happens. If I'm starving, I don't know. Maybe I'd go to grad school. I don't know exactly, but you know, I try maybe I could be a professor. I didn't, you know, I still didn't know, but just give me a year. And I played with to Munoz, these out gigs, hippie kind of style gigs is what we played, actually. Um and Lounge gigs at the same time. And then uh, and I would accompany um, people who were auditioning for shows. That was another thing I could do and make, like, I would charge 20 bucks.
3: Wait, but a little bit slower because okay. there are stars and then there are working musicians. And anybody who knows working musicians is, it's all based on networking and the gift of gab. So to what degree were you working it in order to get these gigs for auditions, et cetera?
4: I was not smooth at all at that time. I was shy and underconfident. But I could play rock and roll on the piano because I could do it in that assembly with pipeline, and I people would remember me I, if I could get heard. Uh, and that's all I was trying to do, too um and taking gigs you know lounge gigs well i took a i took a gig uh just because i could you know if it was going to be a cover band i just know all i knew all the songs i could play and i already could play a little organ which was big but I, you know a special technique involved with organ of course i could do that if i had to audition for a band you know i absolutely no problem so i had that confidence but no confidence as far as interpersonal or anything. But confidence on the keyboard. And I took a gig. We're going to go up to northern Quebec and play for missile bases. Canadian missile base troops up there. Canadian troops in, in the dead of winter on a bus. And I did that. It was like my first professional tour, if you will. I had just a gas. And I met a girl on there, Avril Chown. She was, uh, in a, you know, one singer who was going to do a few numbers for the troops. And she said, I'm auditioning for a show. It's coming on New York show, Godspell. Uh, the audition's next week. Could you play for me? And I want to do a song from the show. If we could learn it together, which we did. And she, I charged you 20 bucks. We learned one of the songs from Godspell from the cast album when we went to the auditions, and she made it through the first auditions. And uh, for the final audition, Stephen Schwartz came to town. He was the composer of Godspell. That was his first show. Now he's composer of Wicked, biggest show ever, I think, literally. Uh, two movies being made about it, as you know, right? But anyway, he's in town, and Avril comes up, her name Avril Chown, and sings this song of his from the show and he says i want to talk to that piano player and he said uh can you play the rest of the auditions he said this guy i've got doesn't know any of the songs that people want to sing well uh, you know i know most of them are just singing aquarius from hair anyway so i played the rest of the auditions for him and at the end of the day he said can you put a band together and conduct the show and it was just like as I've said, Lana Turner and Schwab's—I was discovered just like that. Okay, a little bit slower.
3: You were, before Avril. Were you doing auditions for twenty dollars a show? Once
4: in a while, yeah, uh, uh, my, maybe a local show or something. You know, yes. And I had you done know, that was a this
3: bit. someone would tear your name off in the grocery store? How did
4: they find you? Uh, just uh, they would find me. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I can't, I don't know, I'm trying to get into the business, so I might show up at a jam session or something, and somebody, hey, you know, can you play for me? And okay, I had that, you know. It, so you put
3: together yeah. the band for Godspell. Godspell's playing, that's a lot of work, okay? Yeah. Usually eight shows a week, whatever. One night eight
4: on. a week, yes, yes.
3: Okay so in reality all that popular music you're playing lounge music whatever you don't even have time for that because you're playing in godspell
4: was that well f- that's right i left all those gigs behind and was that fine I still with play
3: you? was that fine with you that now you're the musical conductor and piano player for godspell and you're not in any other band whatever
4: oh absolutely um it was way more legit than i thought i would go uh and I, I, um, and it turned out my career kind of went in that direction, but I thought, you know, I'd be in a band uh, and, uh, work by ear as bands do, you know, rock bands do. Um, but I had taken, luckily I'd taken some piano lessons and this one year, one arranging course, but I, you know, I, I could read. My sight reading was never any good and it still isn't though. Piano teachers were right back then when they said, you know, don't play by ear, you won't learn to read. And that was the case with me. I can play by ear, but I can't. Reading is not. I can read and I can arrange. I have the knowledge. I just can't sight read. Some of these re- rehearsal pianists, oh, put yeah. anything in front of them, they can play it, I can't. So they had to send me the score and I in advance. Luckily, they did, and I worked on it hard, learning it. Luckily, I had the album I could I could learn, you know, I had that to, to hear, except for that opening really hard. No, you know, I worked and worked and worked on it. Thrilled to be in Godspell, no other bands. That's where we And
3: how it. long you in Godspell before the next step?
4: I did um, a year of Godspell in, in Toronto. And during that time, uh, Stephen Schwartz uh, got a movie deal. They made a, a movie out of Godspell, and he brought me in from Toronto to play on the score. First time in New York, uh, in, an, in a New York recording studio, I came in tw- two different times. one to play on uh, various uh, songs, because he, he did like the li- you know, he allowed me to put my own licks in because I couldn't really read uh, exact anyway. And he liked it. He put it on the movie score. And then he said, when this show up here, I'd never take you out of the show up here, he said. But when it's over, I want you to come to New York. And he did. Uh, uh, show ended. I spent some time just really not doing much in in uh, Toronto. Not committing. Kind of having this in the back of the mind. my mind. And sure enough, Schwartz called. I'm doing, this is 1974 now. I'm doing the magic show. On Broadway, coincidentally with a Canadian, the late great uh, Doug Henning, the magician, come down and play for that, and that's when I moved to New York.
3: And any immigration issues, or you got the
4: uh, well, main I card got of- a, I got a uh, my first permit was an H two cate- category, uh, which they got me um, to do uh, the magic show, but it said. You can only play the magic show. You can't go and do other gigs. Uh, so this isn't good for somebody who's trying to get around. You know, I can only do things for free instead of jam sessions and stuff. But at least I was making a living doing the magic show, uh, looking for an immigration lawyer who can get me, uh, you know, leave to be into this country and open this visa up maybe so I could do other gigs. But no lawyers wanted any, you know, they just said, we got enough pianists here. We don't need you. If you were a nuclear scientist, maybe. I can't help you. Uh, finally, I came across one guy who said, well, you've got to prove to them that you're not here to take a, a job away from an American. You're here to provide a unique, and that's the key word, unique service to America. And he says, if you can come up with a, something like that, especially if it's kind of technical and musical, like a, a, an immigration officer couldn't question it, you got to be a musician, you know, then you know, we have a chance. First thing we would do is get you uh, your status changed. And then, if they admit you're unique, then we can then go on and get you a green card, which I eventually got. And now I'm a citizen. And okay. Very proud of it. So tell me, how did you prove you were unique? Well, I, I said, well, how about this to the lawyer? What if I can prove I'm a, an expert in music and comedy and how they intersect? Providing music for comedy and understanding comedy, knowing where the laughs are, what's funny, whatever, you know. And he said, sounds good. And I got letters from all kinds of people. I had done a few things already. I was able to get a letter from Norman Lear because I had to, Done a pilot for him that went nowhere. I got a letter from, uh, well, I can't remember. It's just, oh, a guy who owned the National Lampoon. I was doing stuff for the National Lampoon Radio Hour, working with Chris Guest there and uh, Bill Murray. That's you know networking. You meet people. That's an example of it. So I got letters, and sure enough, it worked. And sure, enough, it's exactly what the immigration officer said. I, he said, I'm sure this is you know I can't question it. And it's not my area. And I got a different, uh, you know, that's when I got my green card.
3: Okay, so your status changes. How does that open up your career?
4: Then I get to do other things for other people, uh, sessions and stuff especially. At that time, I thought if I could be a session man, play on records and, you know, we started to learn what that was, us fans, when we heard about the Muscle Shoals rhythm section and stuff and then the... Now we know about the wrecking crew and how there's these people making records in the the studios going from session. It sounded wonderful to me. And, uh, I started getting little by little getting dates like that. Again, networking, like you said.
3: What kind of dates? Well,
4: um, there was a, I've left out an interesting thing. I mentioned Norman Lear. Um, I was very aware, uh, you know, as a fan up in Canada even, of Don Kirshner. Uh, he had, was the publisher. This was
3: before the TV show, when it was the monkeys and everything.
4: Well, it was, yeah, this is post-Monkeys. Yeah. But in the 70s, right in the 70s, I was, I was doing the magic show, right, you know, very early. Knowing various actors, though, I, I knew Broadway type of people. There's a guy named Don Scardino played Jesus in various Godspell companies. He became a director, TV director, very successful. And he said, you know, we're all in our 20s. He said, I just auditioned for this show. Don Kirshner, he's going to try to do a monkeys in the 70s. New st- and I said, you know, I got the part for the pilot, he said. And I told them, you know, about you. you you're funny, and maybe they want a real musician. So I auditioned for Kirshner and got the part. And before I knew it, I was in Hollywood and we made a pilot called Hereafter. And Jeff Barry, one of Donnie's guys came in to produce and wrote the theme. That's when I met, how I met Jeff Barry. I'm going to be doing this thing with him on the, September 13th. Jeff and I made a song uh, together. He produced it. I wrote it with Scardino. Uh, Kirshner brings it back to New York. He's playing it in his office. Kirshner's demo singer is Ron Dante, who has become Barry Manilow's producer. Barry knew on the scene now, and he's got "Oh Mandy. And uh, I write the songs. Ron Dante produced all those things with Barry. And Ron Dante hears this Jeff Barry thing, and he hears my arrangement. He says, that's not Jeff's style. Jeff is sugar, sugar. Da-da-da. So he says, he started using me as a ranger. And... First artist, his artist was a guy named Paul Jabara. Of course. Paul was going to try to be an artist. I was doing the chart. Paul's song was called One Man Ain't Enough. He was, uh, you know, already mining those humorous aspects of, uh, of love. And we made a good record, Ron producing, and I got, I wrote strings and stuff, uh, disco. Nothing happened as an artist for Paul Jabara, but, way later, he, you know, he moved to LA, he won an Oscar for writing Last Dance for Donna Summer, and then he came back to New York, and this is about 80, and he called me up, and he said, you uh, you did a great job on One Man Ain't Enough with Ron Dante, he said, I got a title now for Donna Summer, I want you to write it with me, what do you think about it? It's Raining Men? And I said, I'll be right over, and that, you know, that became the the okay, the,
3: but, yeah. but you said he was writing for Donna Summer. How did it end up with the Weather Girls?
4: Well, because Donna Summer heard it and hated it. <laughs> <laughs> she had become religious by this point. And she didn't, she was insulted by it, and she didn't like, especially when it said, hallelujah, it's raining men. And she objected to it. She sent a Bible to Paul. She and Paul were were great friends. But she rejected the song. And Paul tried everything because he knew his t- kind of flamboyant guy, if you will, who knew all the divas at the time. And he played it for everybody. Diana Ross, Patti LaBelle, Cher, uh, they all hated it. <laughs> uh, it didn't daunt him. He made a track and he he remembered these two girls. They used to sing for Sylvester. Right. Under the name Two Tons of Fun. Right. He put their voices on it and called them the weather girls. And that. And then when it became a hit, they, they were glad to go and work as the weather girls.
5: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes.
1: You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu.
0: Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious.
3: couple of questions yes sir
4: a what was it like to have a hit kind of amazing um for me of course right uh you know being so tuned to the radio and stuff this song took off very gradually uh interestingly enough and it became a number one dance record right away but as far as top 40 it got to about 43
3: it's one of those songs everybody knows, but if you look it up in the chart numbers, not quite there.
4: Just 43, just out of the top 40. Nonetheless, it started taking off in other countries. And, and when, um, it turned out to be the right tempo for aerobics. It's fast. <laughs> it's a fast dance tempo, which worked in the, in the clubs. And it also worked for aerobics. And that's when it crossed out of the gay clubs into, into the masses, you know. Women liked it, too, in the gym. So it took a long time. took years for this to kind of happen. And then people use it uh, uh, all over the world in commercials or movies and stuff. But it kind of, as I say, it's not like, wow, I got a top-ten record. It, it was never that. It's just kind of a gradual swell.
3: Okay, you write that song, who owns it, and what was your percentage of the 100% ownership?
4: Um. I um, did not ha- give up my half of the publishing.
3: You did not?
4: No, I did not. So I, for the first time, I do have half the publishing on it. Now, there's a little deal embraced with Paul Jabara and his his descendants. Now, he's unfortunately left us. So with my share, you know, I shared a little bit with them. Uh,
3: well, what? wait, wait.
4: Didn't well, because had- Paul did say, you know, hey, I... You know, I want you to write this song. Will you, you know, and I don't want to get into the details of that. No, but, but just so I, I understand, didn't he have the other half of the song? He did, but he was signed to, an, to a company. Gotcha. He said, I'm never going to make any money off this. You've got right. to understand. I'm so in debt to them with all the sessions I do. By the gotcha. time I recoup, I won't make any money. So will you give me a little money from your part of the publishing? And I did. I'm happy to do it. And, and you still, still own still it. still do it. I still do it.
3: And you still own the song.
4: Yes, yes. And I have resisted. I've been offered, you know, some of these, uh, well, I don't know what they're called, these new publishers that are right. coming, buying up people's catalog. I, mine certainly isn't isn't worth what uh, Springsteen's is. I only got one song. But I wrote the Letterman theme, too. But that was then. But any, But still, you know, some deals have come across. I just say, come on, it's my only song. I'm just going to hang on to this. <laughs> See what happens. Because I'll tell you something, when when they want to use it uh, for a toothpaste commercial in Denmark, if you don't have any publishing, you're not going to hear about it, period. And you're not going to get paid for it. It's a different thing when you have a little of the publishing and I have. Half of it. So that's absolutely true.
3: Okay, so you have this hit with the weather, girls. What's the next step for you?
4: Just continue. I was already on Letterman by that point.
3: No, 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 Well, let's go back a chapter. Oh. So. Oh, yeah. So uh, how do you get from Godspell to SNL?
4: Godspell, or Stephen Schwartz brought me to New York, and I was already in New York when the SNL people showed up. After I had done Godspell in Toronto, I was now a theatrical musician. I started doing a few other shows, getting those calls, and a guy came in to play saxophone in the band for one of those shows in Toronto. And it was Howard Shore. Uh, and that's when we met. And we hit it off. And um, Howard turns out to have been not a... He was in a, a band up in Canada that had some success. Lighthouse. Of course. He played saxophone.
3: One fine morning.
4: Yes. He was a saxophone player in that. <clears throat> and he was also Lorne Michaels' best friend. Oh, he had. They had gone to summer camp and done shows together. So Lauren came to town to do SNL, and Howard was his musical director from from the old days in camp. Howard was going to, you know, and Howard did a great job for for them and for him. And I was already in town doing the magic show. Howard called me up, had offered me this job, and um, I was thinking. Um, Oh, my God, it's going to be variety at every... I'm going to have to n- new music every week. I don't um, know if I can cut it. And I, I, after I accepted it, I called Howard one night. Howard, I don't think I'm, I'm the right guy. And he had to talk me into it. He said, <laughs> it's not daily. You know, we're going to have time to rehearse. You'll have the music. He calmed me down. Um, and that's how I, I got on that show, hired by him. But he said, uh, you know, we're hiring a lot of people you know. Gilda had been in Godspell um, in Toronto. She was from Detroit, really, but had been up in Toronto. Um, Aykroyd, I knew. He had hung around backstage at Godspell. Uh, Belushi was one of the first guys I met when I came to New York through another connection I had. Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's older brother. Brian introduced me around in New York when I got there. Brian introduced me to the National Lampoon people. I, I started working with the, doing musical parodies and stuff with them. Now, were you the pianist in Lemmings? No, Lemmings was before my time. Okay. Great pianist in Lemmings' name, Paul Jacobs. Okay. He was with the Lampoon even before I, and Paul Jacobs and I worked together on this one album we made for them called Goodbye Pop. Christopher Guest was with us that was what he was doing at the time he uh he was in new york at the time we wrote some songs together we wrote a song together called kung fu christmas <laughs> uh, you know what if the stylistics did a christmas song that type of thing and that's a collector's item the <laughs> goodbye pop nonetheless some funny stuff on there
3: Okay, SNL starts, well, the first host was George Carlin. Was he the very first Yes, that's right. Yes. And I watched the first night. It was sort of hip. It took a couple of months to become a phenomenon. Yeah. What was it like being on the show? What was your viewpoint looking out?
4: Awfully fun to do. Uh, Leading up to the first show, I couldn't believe we were going to go live. It didn't seem possible. So many elements so many different stages in that big studio 8h cutting from one to another to another and it's all going to be live uh there was no music on the very first show no you know no act that we had to play for or anything as the house band just the theme and some ins and outs so not too much pressure and in general uh, not so aware of any you know how successful the show was being Just having the time of my life really doing a, doing a a network show. And I remember the Christmas show, how much fun that was because of remembering being watching the, you know, Dinah Shore's Christmas show or Andy Williams Christmas, this long tradition and and how important television was to me up in Canada. And then to be a part of a Christmas show myself and getting to play for Martha Reeves that, that uh, Christmas who Lauren booked.
3: Okay, your breakthrough on-camera moment is as Don Kirshner. How did that
4: happen? Well, um, Brian Doyle Murray was a a good friend, as I mentioned. Billy, his brother, was already on the show. Brian later joined SNL as a writer. In fact, he was there as a writer when I came back from doing that Norman Lear thing with Jeff Barry and, and Kirshner, and I got my... When it when it bombed, I got my old job back on SNL and I returned. And I was, as always, though, in part of writing meetings and stuff. I was there for sir, you know, especially if things were gonna get musical. I was up late with everybody often on Tuesday nights and um and um Brian had an idea for a musical number. Um we had a character on the show, a running character. He was really a writer, Michael o- O'Donoghue. One of the key guys, uh, you know, for when it came to attitude, dangerous attitude of the show. And he had a character he would do on camera sometimes, Mr. Mike. Just he was dimly lit and he was kind of eerie and stuff. And Brian said, what if we do a thing? Garrett Morris, our our dear friend, and actor on it, the only black guy, the only black actor on the show at the time. Garrett, the idea is Garrett in drag doing Tina Turner, which he really tore up, and Mr. Mike on guitar, and so instead of, it's, instead of Ike and Tina, it's Mike and Tina. That was the whole idea. Obviously, not much of an idea to hang your hat on, but it required some exposition. You know, how are we going to set this up? Explain that he's Mike, Mr. Mike, and it's Mr. Mike and Tina. And I said, I could introduce this as Don Kirshner. I had worked with Kirshner, of course, and Jeff Barry on this on this bombed show at 77. And during that time out in LA, Kirshner was hot again with, with his uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert. First, you know, that, and there was another one anyway. It was in concert. Early. Yeah, exactly. And um, Kirster called me one day. He he knew I was a big fan of him. I gushed all over him. You know, I knew all about Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart and all of his, all of that stuff. Um, and he called me up and he said, I'm going to go on. I've had voiceovers all this time on my show, introducing the acts. I'm going to go on camera myself. He said, you know, people are saying, maybe I'm a little stiff. He said, but Sullivan was stiff but he had the gig. You know what I mean? And yeah, I got the gig he spoke very kind of fast and show busy in person you know i got the gig you know i may be stiff, but i got the gig he says so i want you to be there i'm gonna go on. i want I'd like you to be there when i go on camera for the first time and i drove down somewhere near hollywood and vine to a studio and he's doing these intros and i never saw anything so funny because he was so animated and fast talking as a publisher but he said, forget about it. You know, we want to talk about track record with the Neil Diamonds and the Carol King's and the Sedakas. We never looked at a contract. He would go a mile a minute. But when he got on camera, he froze up. And he, I'm Don Kushner, and this is rock concert. So, you know, it stuck with me. And I I did at that time uh, to introduce Mike and Tina Turner. And that's how, that's how that came about. The show, God bless them. They were so loose that anybody was welcome to get in on it if they if they had something that, that might be funny. Okay, it, but a yeah. couple of
3: things. This was when it was the hippest show in the country, and unlike today, there was a limited number of outlets. Suddenly,
4: you're famous.
3: What's well, it like th- walking around?
4: Not famous, really. Uh, starting to get a little exposure
3: you but, go to the grocery store people no, don't start do and I, I have doctor. to say no
4: I have to say that certainly did start to happen when letterman started when the letterman show started in 82 um there was a, an, an amazing difference yes and I became sort of well known for sure but not during the you know my little roles on SNL and by the fifth season I was even uh, known as a featured player these are these you know almost uh, semi regular I got that billing and did a few, you know, Kirshner was really the only thing I could do, but <laughs> they would work me into some other things too. But no, I never really got, you know, I, uh, it was never really much of a recognition factor until, uh, Letterman show.
3: And how did you end up in Spinal Tap?
4: Well, um, fifth season of SNL, my, my fifth and last season, Harry Shearer was, it was one of his first two appearances as a cast member he became a cast member that year and the two of us hit it off and we're still close friends um, and we wrote together on snl first thing we wrote together was a a kind of a parody of a backers audition lauren was really you know hoping that the two of us would get together and write something musical we didn't know that you could be like Tina Fey and then put it on Broadway. We weren't thinking like that at all, you know. But we wrote something that we thought was very funny, a backers audition for the worst show you could possibly imagine, something about the Manson family. Uh, B. Arthur was a hostess, and she played like a society woman who, who had lent her home for this backers audition. Harry and I, young composers, and the rest of the cast, Billy, Gilda, Garrett, playing the different characters in the show, singing the song. Garrett as Manson singing a song called Nine because we all know he was into that number nine. And the hook was that it was in 9-8 time, just like those su- silly songs in Superstar. Every song had to be kind of in different times. So that was our – so we hit it off strong. And when Harry and, and the guys were developed Spinal Tap – Harry sold them on me. This guy's funny. And, uh, you know, he would be great for this part, the local promo man. And they, I knew them all. Rob Reiner had, had hosted us and all. I knew them all a little bit. Chris, of course, from, from, uh, from National Lampoon and McKean socially. So they all, you know, it didn't take too much. Uh, and when I said to Harry, well, so you're going to send me my lines. And he said, you'll be making them up. i said what and it turns out that that's that's the way the movie was done they had just seen outlines no you had to make up your own lines.
3: how long did you actually work on set
4: two days work i came out on a weekend to do two days work um first day was the scene well uh there's a little problem because um I was the local promo man, and the, my first scene was I arrive uh, late after a gig to the band's hotel, and I have to talk them into getting up super early the next morning to do a radio interview, and they just don't want to do it. And I'm going crazy, and I, this scene, uh, you know, um, well, I, I, I was, they put in a thing where I took an egg. I once did it in real life, S- so frustrated that I smashed an egg right on my head, and that was in, in the mo- in the movie but then i do get them to the next day we're shooting in the te- uh, radio studio i get them up for the early morning interview and uh, there's a dj ready to go to play a guy playing a dj but harry sure is a dj too as i'm sure you know very much a perfectionist and he did he just didn't approve of the way this dj the dj couldn't you know operate his own slip his own card in queuing up a record at the same time couldn't know. Harry just didn't approve. So that means that scene had to go. And my scene leading up to it, that really had to go too. Although, thank God it appears as a bonus track on the DVD, the egg, stink, the egg thing. And then, and then, they, then, then the kick my ass scene in the, in the record store. All in, all in two days.
3: Okay. The movie comes out. It's sort of a slow burn, but it never went away. This is. Do you start getting recognized from that and people telling your lines to you?
4: Uh, every band that came on Letterman had the ta- the DVD on their ba- on their bus, the touring bus. So they're all familiar with it, and they all said, many of them said the same thing: "It's not funny to us. It's so <laughs> real that we don't, you know, that we don't like it, but we watch it anyway." Okay,
3: so how'd you get the gig with Letterman?
4: Well. Um, you know, uh, after, as Saturday Night Live was ending for me after the first, after that fifth season, Letterman was starting up a show, a morning show on NBC live in the morning. Um, and, uh, they were asked me to, I got the call to do that show. Um, or at least to meet on it, but I, I may have been actually to do it, but, um, It just didn't seem right to me. Uh, The morning, you know, how I had known a little bit about David Letterman, not too much, though. Didn't seem right. And I passed on it. You know, I felt like I was still young. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't know the value of a gig like I do. Now, I passed on it. Letterman still uh, would refer to it on the show. Paul, you didn't do the morning show, did you? No, Dave. Why not? I, I, I couldn't get up that early. (laughs) <laughs> that became a, r- a running thing but the show was too hip for the room and too hip for the hour and it didn't succeed but when they they got their notice you know you but you got to keep doing shows so you were canceling you but you got to keep doing shows for another month that was the funniest month i've ever seen because they were no pressure so i was watching that show uh not regretting that i hadn't done it though and then they remembered me two years later when he got his night show, I got the call again. And this show was going to be so late. It was going to be after the Tonight Show, after Johnny Carson. I said, that's that's more like it, you know. And I was thrilled to, to do that show. And I came in for a meeting with Dave and his producer, and, and we hit it off. And how did you hire the band? Um, well, I had been working in the studios, and I just hired... And I had actually produced for a record for a couple of studio guys. Four studio guys had a band together called the 24th Street Band. Their success was only in Japan, but I made a record with them, produced a record for that market. And they were just some of the best guys, and they already played together. So it was Will Lee, one of the all-time greatest bass players still to this day. And was with me all through the whole Letterman Show till the end. And I still play with him. Steve Jordan on drums, an incredible phenomenon at the time. He's gotten nothing but bigger since then. And most recently joined the Rolling Stones. And Hiram Bullock, the great Hiram Bullock on guitar, who really was like Hendrix, but with, with musical training, um, has left us, unfortunately. But he was our first guitarist. So that first crack man was really strong. The musicians still remember it. And it lasted not too long. It it is a certain kind of, you know, you need a certain kind of discipline to be able to show up every single day. Hiram may have been a little too free-spirited.
3: So tell me about the evolution, and then you go earlier on CBS and you get a uh, female guitar player too.
4: Yeah. um, So so, uh, Hiram, uh, you know, uh, had to leave, and I tried out lots of guitar players on the air, and Sid McGinnis was the best. He had played with Peter Gabriel, um, among many others, and uh, I hired him. And then when Steve Jordan left, he was getting a little hot, you know, just too hot to hang around. And Anton Figg, I had met in the studios. He had played on a number of the Kiss records, un, you know, uncredited. And he was just a great uh, studio drummer with a rock sound. And he played the show great. So there was that. And we did that, you know, all those 12 years at NBC. But when it came time to move to the earlier hour, 1130 on CBS, there was, I just, you know, Paul, you got to get a bigger band. It's a bigger show. We just want a bigger band. That's all that they specified. Um, And it was going to be tough because Dave is so spontaneous, I think still to this day, we're the only show that if something happens out of left field, it's really happening out of left field. It's not we rehearsed it before. You know, we would rehearse sketches, of course. They would be obvious when we were reading lines. But but if something funny happened, if somebody said something funny in the audience, Dave would just change the whole show. Let's go with that. Let's, you know, instead of that, let's, you know, and then whatever I had planned, you know, I I stopped planning stuff. Original band, only four pieces. We could play anything. We didn't need charts. We all kind of knew all the songs. I hired guy. all these guys, although they were studio players, they had that in common with me. They knew all the rock songs. They were unusual. Studio players, often older jazz players, they looked down on rock. But I found these guys who knew the same songs. So it was tough to expand the band, but eventually I, I got it right.
3: okay was the original concept that when the bands come on when the musical acts come on your band would play along not 100 percent of the time but most times whereas previously skitch henderson all these other people they played during commercials but when the musical act came on they had their own players
4: yes but that wasn't really true of of doc severinson who uh you know if it yet yeah, in rock and roll era yeah he didn't play as much but Back in the day, if Tony Ben was on, if, if Frank Sinatra was on, you know, the, yes, the house man was playing because that was their style. They were a big man. Um, yes, David Letterman himself definitely would have loved it if we could have played for everybody. That he says, you know, anything else you can see on MTV, let's see them interact with you guys. And he loved that. And, um, for a period of time, we did play for a lot of the acts. Uh, it was good because we didn't have much of a stage. We had a very small studio at NBC. Um, and it just was uh, nicer to have a few people from the band come nice for everybody. Uh, but, but eventually, uh, when, when we got to CBS, the, the competition for booking became strong. There were other shows. Everybody wanted to, to get the act first, you know. Whether it be uh, the the Lemonheads or these various uh, bad acts in the '90s and stuff, uh, much easier for them to come in with their own setup, and that's kind of became you know let them you know just let make it easy. Otherwise, they're going to go do Jay, you know. So that that by why was why it kind of changed, and we didn't play for as many people by any means. So
3: were you involved in booking the acts
4: at all? No, not at all.
3: How far in advance would you know an act was coming on and uh, working with rehearsing the material, et cetera?
4: Well, uh, it varied. Sometimes we would have enough uh, notice, but sometimes it could be the night before uh, that we would be playing with somebody. Uh, And in that case, well, you know, the early days, 80s, I was working with a cassette machine and cassettes, and I would make cassettes of the song, get them to everybody. There was no phones. Couldn't email a track. Everybody got get the cassette, start listening. Everyone would do their homework. Uh, I started out writing charts for people, but then I realized, let them just learn it. That was what I really loved, everybody learning it from the record like I used to as a kid. But eventually, you know, when I got horns, then I needed charts. And then, you know, and I had to, I was back to getting an arranger and getting arrangements for these things.
3: Okay. You send out the cassettes. The next day, the act is there. Then what happens? Well, we had very little time
4: to do it. Less than an hour to set them up and also rehearse with them. Uh, we were, we had to be as prepared as we could be. That's all. And for the most part, they were really surprised, um, and happy, you know, that we were able to play their stuff so well. Sometimes we would play it more like the record. They hadn't heard it that way. They'd been doing it differently on the road with their own bands. You know, we played record versions. Sometimes they got a kick out of it. Only a couple of times, uh, uh, you know, they, the pe- people weren't so happy just a few times. I certainly did. I got my share of times when I really blew it, though. Not necessarily in those acts, but, uh, you know, certain times. Tell me about blowing it. Well, uh, one thing that comes to mind is um, I blew it with Mr. Anthony Newley, one of my favorites of all time. Um, we had a running thing going. This was a Letterman 80s from NBC. Had a running thing going for a while uh, with a theme song. We had a. Viewer Mail theme song. We used to answer viewer mail. What if there was a theme song? What if we could get Henry Mancini to write it? Which we did. Henry came in, conducted a uh, he had written a theme song for Viewer Mail.
3: My girlfriend's father.
4: I heard uh, I happen to know this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay.
4: Give so her he wrote my best. A theme,
3: wrote a theme song for Viewer Mail. Keep going.
4: Give her my best. I will. Uh, um Yes, and then it became, a, you know, a, he came in and it, it, it entails conducted it. He wrote us more of a thing like, uh, you know, the heart theme, that, that kind of style, very jaunty. And then we started doing his theme with other people, with other celebrities. What if we could get Johnny Mathis to sing the Mancini's theme? You know, we were doing all of this, but it was just a s- silly viewer mail thing. Nonetheless, one week, Anthony Newley was going to sing it. He was going to sing um, Mancini's theme to Viewer Mail. Viewer Mail, da-da-da-da. That's what Henry wrote. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He said, I wanted something like Hallelujah to be. Da-da-da-da, Viewer Mail. So I had Newley, and then often, you know, as a writer of special material as I am, I would write a section in for the different uh, artists. So for Newly, I wrote in a section, The Viewer Male Clown, because he was always singing about the happy clown. He's crying, The Viewer Male Clown, Viewer Male. So that was the, the idea. And, um, Tony, uh, excuse me, uh, Newly, Tony Newly, if I may, that's what the Rat Pack used to call. It. Tony and I had a rehearsal. It was great. He had a great sense of humor about it. One of the songs I really, Stole from him one of the lines. View a male clown; he's only funny by mistake. He said, "Oh, that's mine," you know, which I appreciated. But I was so cocky that I didn't write any of it down. I thought I'll just remember it. It's just me and him, piano, and he sings, and we sing the first section. View a male, and he's it's going great, and then I got to modulate into. The new slow section, the viewer male clown, I modulate wrong. I come out about a fifth higher than it's supposed to be, and he, his ear is so good, he follows me uh, into the new key. But now he's up. We are left with the viewer male. He's way high, and I'm just dying. Oh my God, what have I done? And then he hits this note at the end. The viewer male he hits it it's out of anybody's range he hits the note it's brilliant he gets applause as he goes off i hear this from backstage fuck he's so mad so mad that producer happened to run into him later at the friars club he said oh paul feels so terrible about it and he said oh paul feels terrible oh, yeah, I but i wrote him a you know the nicest letter i could in england and he a lovely letter, a uh, humorous letter he wrote me back. You know, I hit a note. He said, I hit notes that dogs from miles away could, you know, whatever it was. Thank God he forgave me.
3: Okay. When you were playing with bands, did you ever mess it up during the show such you had to redo it?
4: Um. Well, yes. Uh, for certain reasons. Yeah, once in a while it would happen. Not... Sometimes my mess, sure, or somebody would mess up. Yeah, we'd always, we do it if for technical reason. You know, if there was a feedback or something. Yeah, we'll do it again. We'll do it right after the show. Do it one more time, sometimes.
3: Okay, I became a fan of the show, would record it every night, and then watch it on the VCR sans commercials, such Great. that I would save certain performances that blew my mind. If I'm going to, I'm going to bring up the two performances that I remember most and let me know if you actually remember those. Okay. Okay. Melissa Etheridge, I'm the only one. Mm. She came out and she was stomping. That was what really she, she'd had a few albums before. And I certainly knew her and had the records, but she came out and just killed that. Is that anything
4: that resonates at all? I remember it. Uh, and i remember you know she was just a great performer and a live performer who like me had been i don't know where how, if she came up in bars or or what but she could you know she gave it her all and i you know nothing went wrong okay then another it was one e- easy and and she you know she did kill it. and i got to play with her a number of other places and times of various you know charity events whatever He She always came through, always killed.
3: Another one's been in the news recently uh, because of her untimely death, but Sinead O'Connor did You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart Mm. from the movie In the Name of the Father. She was just unbelievable. Any memory of that?
4: Well, I saw a clip recently uh, in the wake of her death. I don't know the title. But she was doing the one that goes da, 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 exactly. Da,
3: da. It's the title is called You Made Me
4: the Thief. of Your right, you know. As I say, it, it's okay. very confusing. She, again, you know, smooth. Uh, she had a you know, sometimes I think she could be a perfectionist, and of course, we all remember the Saturday Night Live uh, episode and stuff. It just went down smoothly. I noticed I'd gotten another, I hired an extra guitar player for her, a guy that I knew, and you know, she came out and killed it.
3: Okay. So a couple of your own memorable experiences of musical guests that really touch you either because it's personal or because they were hit it way out of the park.
4: Well, uh, James Brown is, I always say, uh, when he did the show, he did it a number of times But the very first time. And I had the original band and we were all so into James Brown. We couldn't wait. And he did it very early. One of the early guys who came on and did it with us. And I think it was because we were playing his stuff a lot for the ins and out of commercials. He probably heard us playing something by him because we were playing his stuff all the time. And he might've seen it in his ASCAP statement too. Uh, anyway, his agent called and said he wants to come on. Uh and you know, great. We weren't having musical guests every night. It, it was not a, a pattern as it became. And they didn't, you know, they weren't relegated to the very last spot after the last commercial. At this, it was it was new to us. We hadn't had many musicians at all. We said to him, "How? What does he want to play?" He said, "What does a man want to play with me?" Great, you know, very smart. You know, what do they know? So. Steve said, I'd got, I want, love to do Sex Machine with him because of that beat. Hiram said, There was a time because of that guitar part. And, one of the early single line parts. Um, Will, you know, just thrilled with all of it. And he said, Okay, cool. We were going to do those two. There was a time and Sex Machine. Uh, he brought two horn players. That's it. Hit two of his own horn players and played with us four guys. We couldn't, none of us could believe we were playing with him. But when he started singing and dancing, it was just so strong. You couldn't help but play. We sounded better than we ever thought we would. Um And we did the second song. We ran out of time in the rehearsal. We didn't get a chance to end. We didn't get a chance to make up an ending for the second song. There was a time which he was going to demonstrate all the dances. Uh, so I didn't know what was going to happen. But there we were on the air. And he just, you know, he he just cut us off. Easy. <laughs> no problem. And then he heard us doing a third one of his. Uh, and he said, uh, and, and we all, you know, uh, all of us in the band had gotten our first VCRs at the time, home VCRs. We used to get get together after every show, and watch the that the tape of it. We couldn't believe it, and we memorized all the dialogue too, with the intro, you know, on the panel. And he James took over the show at the end. after he heard us, he said to David Letterman, "You know what i can like to do right now before you close? Can we close with I got I got the feeling?" And then you hear Steve Jordan. whoa, his voice, like, just out of the air. He had taken over. Dave said, we can. We'll take a commercial. Came back, and he did a third song unrehearsed. That show bit. Never got over it. Still, I think, one of the greatest. And a terrific performance on him. Dancing, unbelievable. Not much rehearsal. Uh, camera shot of his feet, you know, iconic, his feet going. Just wonderful. Sly, another one. Sly and the Family Stone. Tell me that gr- story. Uh he um, he came in looking great, wearing a, a track suit, and he was wonderful to work with. He, we rented him a clavinet and a Wawa pedal, or some kind of problem with it. He didn't care. It didn't let him, you know. And he he did two numbers again. He was just terrific. Uh, And then he, at the end of it, he he borrowed a hundred bucks from me. (laughs) 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 But this is the most amazing part of it. A couple of years later, I had been reading in Rolling Stone magazine that Sly was around working with Bobby Womack in Los Angeles. And... Somehow, we Bobby Womack got booked on Letterman. He came into the rehearsal and fr- came up to me. First thing he did, take his wallet out, give me a 100 bucks. He says, here, he says, you'll never get this from Sly. This is my money, but I'm giving this to you. So what a mind-blower that was. That was when I knew I was in show business. I was one of the cats then. Bobby Womack oh. paid me back
3: leaving me sort of speechless who has a story like that i know you can't top it you have um anybody you didn't play with who was alive during you know the letterman era
4: well sinatra and elvis obviously i did pretty well though you know i played with carl perkins we got pretty close to elvis um and others, of course. And as far as Sinatra, well, I did play with Sammy. Both times were amazing lessons for me playing with Sammy Davis. And Tony Bennett, I got to play with. So I did awfully well.
3: Now, the show, if I remember correctly, the late night show ended with Bruce Springsteen. And did it, you're the team, the Booker, did they try to get? Well, it's too late for Elvis, but did they try to get Sinatra?
4: I don't know the answer. Not sure. Uh, I'm sure they must have. But I just, you know, I have no, no information. Don't know. That's, I really was not involved in the booking. And I, when I tried to be once, it just exploded. It's so hard dealing with agents and PR agents and stuff, you know. Uh, so I stayed out of Who's it. Who's it that you wanted to book? Well, okay, I'll tell the story. It was uh, Paul Carrick. Do you remember that gentleman? I know Beautiful. Paul Carrick. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. How well, long ha- has this been going on? Yes, how long? That's right. Uh, he had a solo record that I just loved. Right. Uh, um, I've forgotten it. I it was in my mind, and I was thinking, how long now? Uh, anyway, uh, I just, you know, the the show was. It had booked a number of acts in a row that I just didn't get, and I said to myself, "That Paul Carrick song song's so great, let's get him on." And I just, you know, as they say, stuck my neck out a little bit. Let's get Paul Carrick, can we not? You know the song, "Don't You Tear For Me," my da da da. that's the kind of song that he had at the time. So they book him, and then the word comes back, but he doesn't want to do that song. He wants to do his new song. So I put on the new song, and I'm no, you know, excuse me, but it's just to me it didn't have that. Other song was just so great, but here I am, you know. Now I got it, and I'm gonna be the one afterwards. Paul, is that's you wanted that guy on, you know, because he was gonna do a song that I just I didn't want him to do. Somehow he he got a bad throat infection. He didn't do the show at all, so it was <laughs> came came moot. But that kind of was a lesson: stay out of that. We have people that do that. They know how to do it. Well, you
3: know, it's interesting. He's put out all these albums of covers that hmm. no one seems to know about. Check it right. out because I think you'd find it interesting. It was that one album that, you know, we got to play on uh, MTV. It was in the 80s. I can't remember the name of that track either. Okay. So what keeps you busy now?
4: Well, I am um, having recovered from that initial shock of not ha- not doing the show anymore i'm just really enjoying myself i i do v- various music i'm doing sessions again there aren't sessions like there used to be because the, the computer plays all of the, the stuff now but uh just did an album with a guy named fred lipschess who was the arranger of course on Bloods went Bloods went yeah so that was again you know kind of a full circle and and i did a one two uh, that i'm in the middle of with I kind of am going back to the, you know, straight music. When I look back at my career and I, I have more time to do so now. I'm enjoying my kids, of course, and, uh, practicing again, practicing the piano. And I was about to say, when I look back, I, the, the my favorite stuff is, uh, n- not even, you know, getting on TV. That was wonderful, of course, but. The the sessions I got to do how how fast I got going as a session player and I'm I made a record with Bert Bacharach in about 1976 I can't believe it you know it's just one of those things and that's what really I'm the proudest of I think
3: and did you play sessions when you were on with Letterman or that was, just wasn't enough time
4: No I was well, I did some they, but you know it was disappearing. And it, it, not only the whole scene disappearing, but also right. disappearing for me. If you're on TV, people think you're busy. You know, you need to be in the scene. But I still do things here and there.
3: And how did you get involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?
4: From a session thing. I had done a session um, that involved Ahmed Erdogan, the founder of Atlantic Records, and then and one of the founders of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, it was... Um, uh, the honey drippers with, um, Robert Plant. That was with, uh, during Letterman or early in Letterman run. I just got a call. It's a session. Saturday and Sunday, Robert Plant. Of course, you know, I'm going to be there. And it was, um, um, let's see. Well, Jeff Beck and Nile Rogers were there as guitars. Wayne Pezwater on bass, the, the late grade and the, uh, the drummer has moved to Los Angeles now, his name is Case. But uh, that was, you know, just a session call. But I got to work for Robert Plant and hear his voice in the in the phones. was pretty amazing. And I hit it off with Ahmed, And he, you know, and then he started seeing me on Letterman. And he called me for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the first one was... They were afraid to, the first one was with Fats Domino and everybody, you know, every all the greats that were alive, Elvis posthumously, of course. And they said, well, we can't ask, we don't want to ask them to play because we're honoring them. How can we ask them to work? Yet we've got to have, you know, how are we going to finesse some kind of a jam session? And Bill Graham was still alive and he was on the committee and he said, well, I'll just, you know, I'll say, let's come up for a group photo. And we'll just have instruments, amps and guitars, and see what and we know they're going to play. Well, they took that photo and they went running for the instruments, the greats. they couldn't wait, and the jam was just on. They were calling their own tunes and playing. it was just fantastic just it just erupted
3: and at this point, you were still involved, or what?
4: yeah, that was my fir- the first show, so I was involved the first time i mean i I was involved really all through uh. John Winter's era of it. So almost 30 years, I think, to varying degrees to every, every year, depending on who the inductees were. But that first year was incredible, and it was totally spontaneous. And when Bill Graham was alive, he really politicked for it. that jam. It shouldn't be rehearsed. Don't try to get a show. It's the only time you're going to see musicians absolutely jamming. And so while he was alive, that's the way it was. And that Jan Wenner, however, also a great friend of mine, he wanted more of a rehearsed television show. So that's what it morphed into. But initially, it was absolutely a jam.
3: One final question. Okay. Al Cooper. Al Cooper, Al Cooper an, yeah. You l- had a legendary career with The Blues Project, Blood, Sweat & Tears, Super Session, of course, had the albums with Sounds of the South with Leonard Skinner, et etc., He says his only income is for performing rights, and that you started to use his song with the cape every Mm. Friday night. Yeah. And he was saying he got paid, and then one night they retired the cape. How did you end up using his song, and how did you end up retiring it?
4: One of these things where, Dave, I was playing it and singing it myself. I love you more than you'll ever know. Um, I don't know, I was playing it for a bumper or something. And Dave Letterman, who was much more musical than anybody would have given him credit for, he heard every note that we played all through those years. He said, gee, that sounds like a, son, a James Brown thing. I should uh, feel like I should come out with a cape or something. And of course, Al had been inspired by It's a Man's World when he wrote that. Right. I, I, you know, I think he would be the first to tell us that. And Dave thought it was a James round. turned out to Al Cooper. So that's why it became an Al, one of Al's songs instead of one of James's. But after Dave made that suggestion of a cape, it looks like a, something about a cape. I don't know exactly, but we started doing the cape bit. Uh, we just arranged it. I'll go down on my knees. You come out with the cape. And we, and we did that. Dave put the cape on me. And then it just... Just like that other story I told, it became a runner and we started getting celebrities to put the cape on me. And it became every Friday night and we would actually come back from the commercial for the ID spot. I would be doing that cape, whether it was Heidi Klum or President Trump, all these people came out with the cape. And, And James himself came out and put the cape on me. And then, you know, two years this went on. Al said he built himself a new bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Only he would put it that way. Uh, It had run its course, you know, and we had run out of celebrities. My goodness, we had everybody. Uh, And so it happened that on an episode of American Idol that year, Paul Anker sang My Way. I couldn't for no reason. So I just said, well, let's get Paul Anker here. And with new special lyrics about the cape retiring the cape, and that all came to pass. Paul sang my way about the cape, something about. Well, we had read, it was great to, to work with him. He he's the master of special lyrics, you know. He wrote
3: special lyrics for my birthday. I mean, God bless my, you. My God. my jaw still dropped.
4: Well, our writers made the mistake of sending him some lyrics that they had written when he came in he came in with, by saying you know he says yeah you guys thank the lyrics you save me you saved me two days work he says but I kept one of your jokes which was uh, that they had written which was uh, about the celebrities putting the cape every case in every case they showed their true face except Joan Rivers <laughs> that he liked. But otherwise, he redid everything. Uh, very funny. And they retired the Cape. And Al, I'm, you know, I'm sorry I did the best I could for you.
3: And on that note, Paul, I think we're going to draw it to a close. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak to my audience. And I want to remind everybody, September 13th, your gig with Jeff Barrick. Uh
4: It's going to be a fun night. You, you know, I'm the world's foremost authority. See you there. Bob, a lot of fun. Uh, say hi to your lovely wife.
3: Okay, till next time, this is Bob Lefstax.